or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Soon it will follow 
Qué lejos estoy del suelo donde he nacido Inmensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento Y al verme tan sola y triste cual hoja al viento Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir de sentimiento Good morning 
Mutineers, this is the bee, and it's labor and love. <laughs>
Good morning, mutineers. Welcome to the Labor and Love Show. Coming to you every Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. With news, opinion, commentary, history, by, for, and about you, working people, and me. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Well, good morning to you. We started out with some blues this morning. An album called Slow Blues. Adam Holt had that one called The End. Very nice. Beautiful blues. Second, we had Leela Downs with Cancion Misteca. I don't know about you, but it makes me cry. <laughs> uh, she sings it partly in the native, in uh, one of the many native uh, languages of Mexico. And the last one was sort of a throwback thing. Uh, of my mother, Christine. Los Indios Tabajaras, one of her favorite groups, with <clears throat> Amapola, uh, which was a, a hit in the United States with the Jimmy Dorsey band in the 40s, sung by Bob Everly and uh, Helen O'Connell. The American Rangers were not hesitant about using songs from Mexico, pop songs and uh, even folk songs sometimes. And um, what have we got for you today, you ask? (laughs) Uh, Ever heard of Bobby Wine? Bobby Wine is a musician and politician from Uganda. We're going to play some of his music and talk a little bit about the way he's been treated in his own country. Arrested, actually. We've got a vet telling it how it is about talking to soldiers. How they should think about what they're doing, how they have the absolute right not to go along with the mad program of the militarists. Working class history which big palm oil chief has been has been accused of murdering people murdering activists on his plantations we'll hear from francesca ramsey with her decoded we'll hear from francesca fiorentini with news broke 
talking about if the economy is so great, what's happening? Why don't we feel it? <laughs> um, Eugene Victor Debs, anniversary today, a great labor leader. Have a little short bio of him. Uh, the CEO of Pfizer. Boy, business is good for the drug companies, isn't it? They have got the whole country hooked on one drug or another. Well, the CEO of Pfizer just claimed a huge, I want to say huge, salary increase. Okay. We'll have Golden Lands Working Hands, Chapter 8 of the History of California Labor. How can IBM be laying off people when they save so much money on the Trump tax cut for the rich? I don't know. You got me. We'll have to read, read about that, too. But right now... Radio Labor. News by, for, and about working people all over the world and their organizations. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, November 15th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanche. In the report this week, former Brazilian President Lula Inácio de Silva is released from prison for now. How care economies could create millions of jobs, especially for women. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. After 580 days in a Brazilian prison for crimes he did not commit, former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has been released. He was serving an 11-year sentence on charges made up by the country's far-right politicians. The country's Supreme Court ruled that he and thousands of others should not have been imprisoned until all their appeals were exhausted. Lula spoke to thousands of people who gathered at police headquarters where he was set free. He thanked them for sticking by him throughout his incarceration. He said he could hear them calling good morning at the start of every day and then good night as evening fell. He told the crowd that by imprisoning him, the right wing tried to kill an idea. But Brazil did not improve, he said. Brazil got worse. The people are going hungry, he said. The people are unemployed. They do not have formal jobs. They are working for Uber, riding bikes to deliver pizzas. Lula, a former trade unionist, has been strongly supported by the international labor movement. Demonstrations on his behalf have been organized all around the world by unions affiliated to the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers at the world level. Last September, I interviewed the ITUC's General Secretary, Sharon Burrow, just after she had visited Lula in prison. I asked her about the visit. Lula is an amazing man. He's truly a leader, a giant amongst others. He's in isolation, totally in isolation. He has no TV, no phone, no internet. He's allowed 
four or five visitors twice a week for two hours. His family gave up an hour of their visiting time so I could visit him with Wagner Freitas, who's the leader of the court in Brazil. I found him strong in spirit, strong mentally and strong physically. He knows that there are hundreds of people who have kept vigil for him outside in the, the resistance camp, outside the prison. He says he hears them say good morning and good afternoon. They feed his spirits. He says clearly his people do not need to live in poverty. They do not need to live without social protection. They can have good jobs and just wages. They can live with dignity and Brazil can be rebuilt. As General Secretary of the ITUC, you travel to many countries in support of labor unions and their struggles. Do you find parallels between how Lula is being treated in Brazil and how labor activists are being treated in other countries? In just five years, we've seen the arbitrary arrests and detention, indeed extrajudicial killings of labor and human rights activists, has gone from 35 countries where systematic violence was experienced to now 69 in just five years. That's a record of a breakdown in democratic rights and freedoms around the world. So this isn't an accident. The growth of authoritarianism, of dictatorship, of silencing of opposition voices is tragically seen in too many countries. A report produced by the International Trade Union Confederation, the ITUC, shows that investment in the care economy of 2% of GDP in just seven countries could create 21 million jobs and help countries overcome challenges related to aging populations, economic stagnation, and inequality. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. To find out more about the care economy, I talked to Maria Tarantanaki. Ms. Tarantanaki is a policy officer in the Equality Department of the ITUC. I asked her to describe the care economy. The care economy is a, is a concept developed by feminist economists, first of all, and, uh, and it illustrates how the economy and gender inequalities are intersected. And as a consequence, feminist economists put the care economy at the center of their economic analysis. So care work is broadly defined as looking after the physical, psychological, emotional, and developmental needs of one or more or other people. So these people will be adults and children, the old and the young, and including the sick and those with disabilities, but, or even like healthy adults who, who need, who have a specific physical, psychological, emotional needs and require varying degrees of protection. What is uh, in the care economy? First, we have to say that the care work always takes place within a care relationship. So there is always a caregiver and a care receiver, such as a care given from a mother to a child or a nurse to a patient or domestic worker to a client. 
So the care economy does include both the caregiver and the care receiver. And when it comes to the caregiver, the care economy includes those who perform both unpaid care work and those perform paid care work within the different subsectors of the care economy. In terms of um, the, the size of the care economy, a very recent and quite comprehensive ILO report on the care economy has shown that the global care care workforce comprises 381 million workers, of whom 249 million are women and 132 million are men. And this workforce includes care workers in care sectors, such as education and social work, care workers in other sectors, domestic workers and non-care workers in care sectors who support care service provision. Um, in terms of the size of the care recipients, again, the ILO uh, has shown that in 2015, 2.1 billion people were in need of care, including 1.9 billion children under the age of 15 and 200 million older persons. And, and it's expected that by 2030, this number is expected to reach 2.3 billion people, which is driven by an additional 200 million older persons and children. And the ILO also says that in order to achieve the sustainable development goals, there is a need for an additional 269 million jobs to be created in the, in the care economy. And in addition to that, the World Health Organization predicts that due to, the, to economic and demographic trends, there will be a need for an additional 40 million new jobs in the health and social sector and mostly in middle and high income countries by 2030. But what is important to mention is that despite the anticipated growth in jobs, there will be a projected 18 million health workers shortfall, mainly in low and low middle income countries. What is important is also to mention the size of unpaid care work. So in terms of the size of numbers and the work that is performed, we have to highlight that women perform 76.2% of the total hours of unpaid care work, and this is more than three times as much as men. And this work contributes from 20 to 60% of national domestic product that governments unfortunately, and international institutions do not yet recognize or value unpaid care work in the development of economic and social policies. What would increased investment in the care economy do? It's important to highlight uh, the value of care and how indispensable it is to the functioning of our societies and to our own well-being and how care contributes enormously to the economy. So the International Labour Organization has stated that care deficits in the quality and provision of care services will create a severe and unsustainable global care crisis and increase gender inequalities at work, if not adequately addressed. Therefore, investment in care as a public good again linked with global respect of the rights of all workers, including migrant workers, coupled together with union representation, collective bargaining, and living minimum wages, can indeed reverse this current trend and can indeed avert a global care crisis. Research commissioned by the ITUC shows how investing 2% of GDP in public care services will be very beneficial for those who provide care, those who are in need of care, as well as for the economy as a whole. The investment will contribute to jobs growth, 
through the creation of millions of quality jobs. And such an investment will have a direct effect through the creation of millions of jobs for women and men in the care sectors. But in addition to that, there will be expansion in household income as a result of the expansion in employment. There will be savings in public expenditure from the reduction in unemployment and social security payments and additional tax revenue from the newly employed workforce. To give you an example, in six emerging economies, an investment of 2% of GDP in care will create over 42 million jobs. And in addition, ILO research has shown that around 269 million new jobs will be created if investment in education, health, and social work were doubled by 2030. In addition to that, such an investment in care will further close gender gaps in employment by improving pay and working conditions in the care sector and increasing the options for informal carers to juggle paid work and caring. Uh, and overall, such an investment will stimulate and contribute to inclusive economic growth and will help tackle some of the central economic and social problems that are confronting contemporary societies, such as low productivity, the care deficit, demographic changes, and the continuing gender inequality in both paid and unpaid work. Um, and again, to give you an example, um, ITUC research has shown that in industrialized countries, an investment of 2% of GDP in care brings a positive return of between 2.4% and 6.1% of GDP growth. How would investing in the care economy help build equality? Well, care responsibilities and reproductive roles profoundly affect how women participate in the workforce, including the type of work women do, the positions women hold, the quality of female-dominated jobs, and the pay women receive. In addition to that, work in the care sector is systematically undervalued and characterized by poor pay and working conditions. And care workers, majority of whom are women and also disproportionately migrant women and women of color, too often experience discrimination, job insecurity, including zero-hour contracts, low pay, poor working conditions, and violence and harassment in the job. And at the same time, many of these workers must work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. To add to the, to the bigger picture, austerity measures, public de- disinvestment and outsourcing have accelerated precarious and informal conditions in general for workers, but including for care workers, especially for the growing numbers of domestic workers and, and home care workers. And these policies have had disproportionately negative impacts on women's human rights and have increased gender gaps in employment and social protection. When Lula left the prison in which he had been incarcerated, thousands of people were outside to greet him. Here's what happened.
And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts on our website at www.radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Radio Labor there. The worldwide look. Look at what's going on all over the world. Campaigns. Everywhere you go, in any time, in any land, workers are standing up and demanding better lives. And at the heart of it is a protest against capitalism. We hear about hunger strikes because there's not enough food to eat. We hear about protests about uh, inequality. Quality. Remember the uh, the guy in Algeria, I believe, or Tunisia, who was trying to. He had a. He was a peddler, and he was so frustrated and so full of anger at his government and the way it was restricting the rights of working people, that he set himself on fire and ignited the whole thing called the Arab Spring. These are protests against capitalism. Okay? In an uncapitalist world, maybe everyone has medical care. Everyone has a place to live. Everyone has a job or an income. All these ideas are coming to the fore now because the people who run the country, the rock-ribbed capitalists, the 0.1%, whatever we want to call them, are starting to see revolts all over the world. So we'll see how that changes. What if every billionaire... Every billionaire in the world had to give all the money he or she had over a billion dollars to a democratic state. Would there be poverty? No. Would there be people sleeping on the street? No. Would there be hungry children? No. Would there be brutalized, humiliated workers? No. Would there be people struggling, just working enough to, trying to work enough to survive? Making those low wages that subsidize the great consumers, people who are having a nice, We're living nicely, having a nice way of life. That's all paid for by low-wage workers. Anyway, radio labor. I want to talk a little now about a guy named Robert 
I can't say the name. Let's call him his stage name, Bobby Wine. Ugandan politician, businessman, philanthropist, musician, and actor. Member of Parliament. He was born in 1982 in Uganda. Started playing music under the name Bobby Wine in 1999. His music connects reggae, dancehall, and Afrobeat styles, often with a socially conscious message. Well, he involved himself in the politics of his country. And... Um, uh, there was an independent candidate for parliament named Cassiano Wadri who allegedly obstructed and attacked the President Museveni's convoy at the northern town of Arua. The motorcade was pelted with stones. Anyway, Wine was arrested in 2018, August of 2018, and beaten and the government, of course, continues to deny torture allegations. <clears throat> he was arrested in April 2019 <clears throat> for supposedly staging and leading a riot. His arrest sparked great unrest in and about Kampala on 29 April 2019. And just recently he announced, he was released on bail, he announced that he's going to run for president. Okay, here's some of his music. Let's listen up. Now this one is not going to play on your radio or your TV, but you can share it and spread the vibe.
Okay, that was Bobby Wine. Um, and uh, like I say, Wine is uh, running for president of Uganda. And uh, very well known there. Let's see, how about this one? Many times in this journey of life, he says, we face challenges that seem huge and insurmountable. Osobola. This call. I'm on. Remember that everything you believe you can achieve, man. Watch this. Aye, para be manji mubona mwa batuba, bamu neva kwa mama ni neva chita, na ene no kamba kambi amazima, kule mera kumu nangi umaraku, kati tuasa wewe kuruma na longa, tuesi kama kama katunda, kubanga nenda wudi anjiga goli asinga yesi zemo kama katunda, wadenge bela eka yosobola. Even if the situation is hard, you can do it. Lose hope, you can do it. Let's fight hard.
Deva kutisa, deva kufisa, deva kunyomanga Na wevi ntobi inza, bali mubu inza, deva kukanganga Mwadinga, bajana vitala, bajana lianji petuze na muka makatunda Kubane ndaunye ya kubangoli ya siya kwa tabu kwa sijinja Vituwa pamuke tukurumba na ulonga, tuesize muka makatunda Wadengembela eka yosobola Kusabato kwa mosubi yosobola Manyamo kama wali yosobola Kusobola embela yona Wadenga intisa nyingi yosobola Ngamo kama wali yosobola Kale noto kwa mumanyi yosobola Kusobola mumbela yona Even though you are afraid, you can do it You believe, you can achieve Osobola by uh, Bobby Wine, about whom we've been talking. And uh, I have to watch that. Watch the situation in Uganda. All over the world, people are standing up and fighting back and demanding better treatment. This day in labor history, on the 16th of November, 2009, Enda Mendelssohn, mother of three and an angry brigade member, died aged 61 after a long battle with a brain tumor. Jailed in 1972 for 10 years for a string of non-lethal attacks on fascist corporate and state targets, Anna was paroled after five years and devoted herself to poetry. She was a member of the Angry Brigade, one of Britain's first urban guerrilla groups, with John Barker, author who in 1977 was convicted for being part of the organization. That's from working class history. Okay, let's take a look at the labor beat. It's about 10 minutes to the hour. 10 reasons we're against unions. Now, these are workers who are raising their voice to demand that they don't have unions. Strange. Well, you might say so, yeah. Unions, one guy says, just want to line their po- their own pockets. 
right? Unlike bosses who have only our best interests at heart, another worker adds. Here's an angry guy. Well, other than weekends, lunch, breaks, other than weekends, lunch, breaks, overtime, pay, parental leave, pension plans, higher wages, and sick leave, what good have unions done? Here's a woman who says, I deserve less pay than men. Of course, equal pay has long been a union demand. Equal pay for equal work. Equal pay for work of equal value. Here's another guy. He's got a hook on and a, a patch over his eye. He says, I don't want the company wasting money to make my job safer. intellectual with a bow tie and a pipe, speaking objectively, all unions are evil. Ah! One of his co-workers says, I want the right to work, along with the right to be arbitrarily fired. Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only business should get to do that. Oh, one day I'm going to get rich, and I'll be the boss. When that happens, I don't want some union getting in my way. Who wants more power at work, after all? Well, you don't need a union. You need a hole in the head. <laughs> Here's one we referred to earlier. Pfizer CEO gets a 61% pay raise. He now makes $27.9 million as drug prices continue to climb. A comment of labor and love. Wonder where all that money is? That money you never see because it's taken from you before you ever get paid? It's going into the pockets of people like this. In a three-week span, the Pfizer company hiked 116 drug prices as much as 9.6%. Ian Reid, chairman of, and CEO of Pfizer, spoke with President Trump last July about pausing drug price hikes. Pfizer now plans to increase prices of 41 of its drugs. As drug giant Pfizer hiked the price of dozens of drugs in 2017, it also jacked up the compensation of CEO Ian Reid by 61%. Pfizer's board reportedly approved the compensation boost because they saw it as a compelling incentive to keep Reed from retiring. Part of the deal, Reed has to stay on through at least next March and is barred from working with a competitor for a minimum of two years after that.
is on Ars Technica. That echoes the pattern seen in 2016, 2015, 2014. In June of 2016, Pfizer raised the list prices of its medicine by an average of 8.8%. One spokesman for Pfizer says the company takes a measured and responsible approach to pricing. Well, connect the dots. They raise the drug prices. The CEO makes $27.9 million a year. Huh? That's about as in your face as it can get. There's a young vet talking to other vets, talking about people in the service about what they should think about doing. Let's start them over here and give them a fair chance to start. Susan Brothers, thanks everyone for being here. We're from the organization March Forward. We are here to say to all those serving in the Army, in the Marines, in the Air Force, in the Navy, that you have the absolute right to refuse to take part in these criminal wars. And that's the right that all of you should exercise. You have no reason to go put your life on the line and kill and die for profit. We've been to Iraq. We've been to Afghanistan. And we know what these wars are really about. And we joined the military for many reasons. Because we need a college education. Because we need a job. Because we need health care. And then we joined the military. And they tell us that our enemies are poor people in caves in Afghanistan. Or poor people in deserts of Iraq. But we've been to those countries. And we know that our enemies are not other poor people abroad. Our enemies are the people that laid us off from our jobs. That denied us health care. That make it impossible to get an education. Our enemies are not in the poorest countries on the planet, but right here in the richest one. The occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan alone are costing over $700 million every single day. This is a crime. Every single day, while so many of us are hurting, while I think all of us here and the vast majority of people in this country would agree that we can spend $700 million a day better than bombing people that we have no reason to bomb. We can spend $700 million a day rebuilding those countries we've destroyed. We can spend $700 million a day caring for the veterans we get home when they get home. And then we can spend $700 million a day giving every single person health care, a college education, a job, and a livelihood, and a home. That's who we need to be spending our money on. But this government is not going to do that. They're not going to use the money in that way. They're not going to end the wars. And they're not going to do it because it's not our government. It's their government. It's the government of the rich. It's the government of Wall Street, of the oil giants, of the defense contractors. It's their government. And the only language that they understand is shutting down business as usual. And that's what we're doing here today. And we're going to continue to do until these wars are over. It's crystal clear now 
that these wars are going to continue and expand and go into other countries. That is the trend. That is what we know, that there is perpetual war. And it's only going to stop if the people stand up and stop it. And that's what we're going to do, sisters and brothers. A lot of people ask me, what do we do? Because we all know things are bad. We all see the atrocities on TV. We read about it. We experience it. People always ask, what do I do? Because we always want to know what to do. Do we vote? Do we support a politician? Uh, what, you know, do we join an organization? What do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. It's simple. We fight. We fight and we fight and we fight and we shut down our workplaces. We shut down our schools. We shut down the streets. We shut down business as usual. And we fight until we force the people in there to do what the people out here want. Because that's how we're going to get around and we're going to fight until there's not one more bomb drop, not one more bullet fired, not one more co a soldier coming home in a wheelchair, not one more family slaughtered, not one more day of U.S. imperialism. Let's fight to make that happen. We can do it today and in the days ahead. We have to fight to end these wars and create a better world, sisters and brothers. That was a young man speaking at an anti-war rally, a veteran himself, speaking from the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. Um, I don't see any details on who that was. At any rate, people are out there. People are out there fighting. People are out there resisting. Now, Decoded is a show that we use sometime here. We have uh, a Decoded person is a woman named Francesca Ramsey. And Francesca brings a comic but very serious eye <clears throat> to social problems and social interactions. <clears throat> and... Uh, Five things you should know about racism. I've got a challenge for you. Try talking about racism with your friends, family, or coworkers, and get ready to watch people squirm. So let's push through the discomfort. Don't worry, you can do it. We're gonna talk about racism. Well, the dictionary defines racism as the hatred or intolerance of another race or races. Well, yes, but racism's a little more complicated than that. The dictionary offers a very simple explanation, because it's just the dictionary. If you want to understand racism, you need to talk sociology. And sociology explains racism as a combination of prejudice and power. <laughs> well, isn't that just convenient? Let's just ignore what the dictionary says. No, we're not ignoring the dictionary, just going a little deeper. Think of it this way. If your car breaks down, you don't look up car in the dictionary to try and fix it, you go to a mechanic. So when it comes to getting the nitty gritty of understanding how racism works, I say we should probably defer to sociologists, because you know, they study how people, organizations, and institutions work. It's kind of their job. So here are five things everyone should understand about racism. Ugh. 
talking about racism is so exhausting. It's like no matter what I do or what I say, someone's gonna call me a racist. Good people can unintentionally say and do racist things. Racism isn't just burning crosses and racial slurs. It's not always a conscious hatred or dislike. People automatically associate saying something racist with being a bad person. And while we can agree that being racist is bad, good people can say racist things or just wind up supporting racist institutions and practices without even realizing it. Oh, so now it's my fault if I accidentally do something. We're not playing the blame game here, but accidents can still be hurtful. It's important to remember that intent isn't the issue, it's the impact. Like if I accidentally step on your toe, it's an accident, but it still hurts. And I can't just pretend that I didn't step on your foot. I have to acknowledge it, say that I'm sorry, and be more careful with my big ass feet. If you wanna get technical, there's really no such thing as race. We are all the human race. It's a social construct. Race is a social construct, but that doesn't mean racism isn't real. A social construct is a category, perception, or idea created and developed by society, and then it's applied to individuals or groups. So yes, we're all part of the human race, but the human race did this funny thing where they categorized everyone based on skin tone and regions. Even though social constructs are made up, they're still real. I mean, money is a social construct. Fundamentally, it's just a piece of paper, but it still keeps people up at night and has a huge effect on our day-to-day -day lives. Marriage, fashion, good and evil, they're all social constructs, but they're still real things. The same is true for race. White, black, pink, purple, polka dots. I don't know why we need all of these labels. Let's just not see race. Just see everyone the same. Colorblindness is not gonna fix racism. It's a good idea in theory, but ignoring race is not gonna solve racism. Race isn't the problem. Treating people differently based on race is the problem. It's okay to see my race. I mean, it's kind of hard to ignore how someone looks. There's nothing wrong with seeing our differences. Our differences make us kind of cool. Okay. But when are we gonna talk about reverse racism? Reverse racism is not a thing. I've been bullied, beaten up, and called all sorts of names in my lifetime, and you're gonna tell me that's not racism. Whoa, that sounds awful. I'm sorry, none of that stuff is okay. But those are examples of racial prejudice, not racism. That's because racism isn't just about individuals. It's about institutional power. Racial prejudice is not cool, but when a person of color discriminates or stereotypes a white person because of their race, in the United States, they don't have the institutional power to back them up and say that those feelings are okay. Institutions are things like schools, government, the military, corporations, and our justice system. All of these things shape how people of color are treated as a group and as individuals. That's because racism is not just on a person-to-person -person basis. It's big picture things, like people with traditionally Latino or black sounding names having a harder time getting job interviews, even when they have the same qualifications as white people applying for the same job. Or people of color facing harsher prison sentences for petty crimes in comparison to white criminals. It's also harder for people of color to get home loans on top of housing discrimination that often keeps them out of predominantly white neighborhoods. This is how individual feelings about people of color are supported by institutional power. Prejudice of any kind isn't okay, but it's important to understand that prejudice and racism aren't the same thing. Huh. I never thought about it like that. Well, you are not the only one. Racism is complicated and overwhelming to think about, even for me. But understanding what racism is and what it isn't is the first step in fighting against it. So what are some misconceptions that you've heard about racism? Or maybe some misconceptions that you had in the past? 
Let us know in the comments and we'll see you next week. In our last vlog, I went to VidCon and asked fans about racism and stereotypes on YouTube. Here are some of your comments. Yeah, Madrigal Kappas, there's nothing worse than being afraid of the police when you haven't done anything wrong. When I was in LA, I had to drive and the entire time I was looking over my shoulder like, I hope I'm not doing anything wrong. Lizzie Hayward, I love Susie. His Disney stories are hilarious. Ucamera 13, you've got really good taste. This is an awesome list. Some of my favorite YouTubers are on here, so you guys should definitely check them out. And in our last sketch, we wondered what some of our favorite movies would look like if they were starring black actors. Here's what you had to say. You know, Lola's 2011, I really want Idris to be James Bond too, but I heard he doesn't want to do it. Linda Mitchell, you are brave to want to go back to 1955, because there's no way I'm going back there. That was our decoded feature, talking about uh, racism. Uh, she has a nice, fresh way of trying to get you to look at things in a different, different way. Um, starting from the same place and trying to take on people's ideas as they are. Had a comment about the the recent school shooting uh, is getting to be a broken record, huh? Um, three kids <clears throat> dead, two wounded. The uh, shooter turns his gun on himself and misses, dies the next day of, a, of the self-inflicted wound. And... Sociologists and, and everybody, really, uh, when something like this happens, we look for a common thread. We look for a common thread. Uh, was this person unpopular? Was he being bullied? Was he uh, particularly violent? Was he involved with a white supremacist group? Uh, was he a quote-unquote terrorist? Um and it's inconsistent. It's hard to find a common denominator. Except that there is a common denominator. And that is being raised with guns. Uh, being given guns. Having guns around the house. Um, involving yourself in... in uh, Guns and gun culture. And this is uh, going to be a hard pill for people to take. Because Americans are singularly attached to their guns. It's part of our national uh, mythology that the, the country was one using guns against all these threats we have. The perceived threats at that time were uh, slave revolts, of course. Modern policing developed from slave police. Um, conflict with the native tribes that lived here. Guns, shooting them, killing them, killing them all as... General Sherman said in 1873, 
Don't worry if they're women or kids, just kill them all. Right? Don't let uh, tender feelings overcome you. Mr. Sherman, widely praised general. Uh, let's see. Working class history. On this day, December 16th, 1984, 2,000 black tenants were arrested near Johannesburg, South Africa, for non-payment of rent. They claimed truthfully that they were unable to pay the rent because they had burned down the rent office. But apparently the police did not consider this a valid excuse. <laughs> uh, this reminds me of the time in uh, South Africa, I believe, or one of the South A Southern African countries, when uh, miners who were on strike were arrested and charged with murder because uh, someone had died during the, during the demonstrations. Professor Andrew Basevich, firing a $70 million missile from a $28 million drone, flying at a cost of $3,624 per hour, to kill people in the Middle East living on less than a dollar a day. This is where our money goes. This is why you don't have more money. This is why they cut your pay whenever they can or, or cut your benefits or raise your rent. We live in a country where if you want to go bomb somebody, there's remarkably little discussion about how much it might cost. That $650 billion military budget. But then you have a discussion about whether or not we can assist people who are suffering and give them health care. We suddenly become very self-conscious, cost-conscious. What? We can't afford that. It's too much money. <laughs> Eugene Victor Debs, a giant of a labor leader in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Debs wrote, I am opposing a social order in which it is possible for one man who does absolutely nothing that is useful to amass a fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars, while millions of men and women who work all the days of their lives can secure barely enough for a wretched existence. What do those rich people do? Do they go to work? How many miners? This is the anniversary of the Cherry Hill disaster in Illinois, Cherry Hill bomb. 259 workers, miners, were blown up and killed. 
How many millionaires were killed? How many billionaires have been killed in work-related causes? How many millionaires? Probably not very many. Someone should do some research on that. IBM paid zero dollars in taxes for Trump's, thanks to Trump's tax cuts. He even got up in Florida after the bill passed and said, I just made a lot of you very rich. IBM paid zero taxes. Now it's laying off 1,700 employees. Come on. Labor 411. Another corporate giant that benefited handsomely under President Donald Trump's tax law is laying off workers. IBM announced that it is laying off 1,700 employees despite its stock value increasing 16% this year. Add in the fact that the company paid $0 in taxes last year thanks to the Trump tax cuts. And it becomes even clearer that companies are hoarding their new wealth rather than having it trickle down to workers. <laughs> what a con game. What a beautiful lie. Let me rip you off for more of the money you work for. Let me take more of that. And eventually, because I have all that money, some of it is going to trickle down to you. It's yours, but I'm going to take it. And if that doesn't happen, if I decide to go buy a yacht or a work of art or I decide to go on a cruise or whatever I decide to do, don't worry about it. That's just part of what's going on. Okay, if the economy is great, why aren't we? This is Francesca Fiorentini from Newsbroke. If the economy is great, why aren't we? The economy is doing great. At least that's what my parents tell me over the phone while I'm driving from my day job to my night job. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of Newsbroke, we're looking at the difference between the economy doing well and how people are doing in it. A difference as stark as the Instagram me versus the real me. You don't even want to know. We're digging into the useless measurements that define our trickle-down economy and then looking at another way to gauge a healthy society. Can you guess which country is doing the best? Sure, he could be a Manchurian candidate who inspires white supremacists, but Trump has got the economy down. The Trump economy is the envy of the world. The Trump economy keeps winning. It's the most successful economy in modern history. The miracle of the Trump economy. Now in the Trump economy, everybody wins. A miracle? Everybody wins? When the economy sounds like a Ponzi scheme, you can bet it probably is. All I need is $15,000 from you up front, and in 10 years, you'll be delivering for Grubhub. 
Statistically, the economy is doing well since Trump has taken office. The country's GDP has grown every quarter at an average of 2.6%. Unemployment is at a near 50-year low, and the stock market gained by 31%. And yet, sometimes it feels like the real reason we hear so much about the economy is because it's the only part of the Trump administration that isn't an unmitigated train wreck. It's like if the waiters at Applebee's bragged about the one dish they brought you that doesn't have pubes in it. Those tots are solid. <laughs> the problem lies in how we talk about the economy. Like earlier, I told you the economy was doing well by citing GDP, unemployment, and the stock market. Yeah. And maybe your eyes kind of just glazed over a bit, and you generally accepted what I was saying was probably pretty good, like anything Pete Buttigieg says. But few of us understand what those things actually mean. Because when you start to look into the measurements of a so-called good economy, you learn how incredibly disconnected they are from our everyday lives and well being. Let's start with the wonkiest one that gets thrown around a lot. Gross domestic product, or GDP. GDP is a stat that is so dry and boring that high school economics students are finding any way possible to spice it up. GDP, 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 GDP. Okay, we all did bad parody songs in high school, but as a Beatles fan, those last ones hurt. That's like if instead of dropping acid and writing Sgt. Peppers, they developed an app. GDP is what most pundits refer to when they say blanket things, like the economy is growing. It calculates the final value of goods and services that a country produces. But there are a bunch of problems with that calculation. First, it factors in negative value, like buying things for bad reasons. Let's say you were in a 500-year flood and had to swim to the Home Depot to buy bamboo and zip ties for a makeshift raft. The GDP could actually go up. The GDP also doesn't show the distribution of proceeds earned from goods and services, whether there's any equity between people in a country. Using higher GDP to say all people are doing better is like if LeBron James entered your home and increased the gross domestic height. So I congratulated you for getting taller. By the way, LeBron, you're invited to my home whenever you like. That makes sense right now, because while GDP in the US might be up, so is inequality. I know you're used to hearing it come out of this guy's mouth, but it bears repeating. Right now, the top 10% of Americans has about nine times as much income as the bottom 90%. That's insane. So yes, while GDP might show there's more wealth being made. Almost all of the wealth and much of the income is going to the top 1%. I had to let the guy do his thing. GDP as a statistic is so detached from reality that even economists at the World Economic Forum in Davos, which is basically spring break for the 1%, called it a poor way of assessing the health of our economies that needs to be replaced. That's the equivalent of a pig in sh** going, hey, this is shit, huh? Then there's unemployment, which as of August is at 3.7%. I mean, unemployment is at record lows. I don't think that that tells the whole story. When you can't provide for your kids, working a full-time job, working two full-time jobs, when you can't have health care, that is not a that is not dignified. Ooh, telling the blue-eyed silver fox of television news that something isn't dignified is the way to get to Anderson Cooper. That and telling him that he's a knockoff Trivago guy. 
But AOC is right. Unemployment, which, fun fact, is actually going up in states that voted for Trump, is a figure that doesn't factor in a bunch of things, like the number of people who are underemployed, which an IMF study shows is going up around the world. There are about 4.4 million underemployed Americans left out of the unemployment numbers, which is more underemployed people than before the Great Recession. These are people working part-time jobs because your manager at Pier 1 Imports would rather hire someone else than give either of you full-time work and benefits. Meanwhile, he keeps telling you, Well, we'll just see how you do with the pillow pyramid. Unemployment numbers are also problematic because they only count the people who are actively seeking work. One study found that despite low unemployment, there's a quote, perverse underlying trend of people dropping out of the workforce altogether by simply giving up. Unemployment is like counting single people by those who are actively dating. What about those who've just given up and want to stay home and binge big little lies, not live it? And of course, none of this has to do with whether Americans are making enough to make ends meet. In 2017, 40% of all Americans had trouble affording basic necessities like food, healthcare, or housing. That's partly why so many people have more than one job. But that's not factored into any conversation about the economy either. How many times have you been in a lift and heard, I only drive from 4 a.m. to 10, and uh, then I head to the call center, and I DJ at night. Yeah, yeah. Sleep? Now, I'll sleep when I'm dead, which hopefully won't happen while you're still in the car. <laughs> Gum? And finally, there's the stock market, which has also been doing fairly well under Trump. And yet, only the richest 10% of Americans own about 90% of all stock. And so few of us understand how it even works. Let's hear one hedge fund manager explain it using a dog walking analogy. You got a guy, he's got a leash, there's a dog on the other end of it they're walking in the same direction. If you observe the way the man crosses the park, his stride, it's fairly straightforward. The man walking the dog is the economy. Then when you think about what the dog is doing, the dog is running around like a lunatic. It darts to the left, it darts to the right, it strains on the leash. That's the stock market. Train your dog, bruh. That analogy makes some sense. If you think about how every time the stock market takes a shit, we're all forced to clean it up while it humps our leg. Let me offer a more accurate analogy. The stock market is essentially a confusing casino game played by just a few people speculating on everyone else's money, which means most Americans are that kid helplessly watching our father gamble away our college fund at Caesar's Palace. Sure, I'll blow on your dice, pops. Come on, daddy needs a new daddy. Okay, so if it's not GDP or unemployment figures or the stock market, how do we know how we're doing economically? Well, we could look at prices, how rent has skyrocketed, healthcare expenses are gouging our incomes, college tuition has doubled since the 1980s, or just look at wages. They haven't gone up in 40 years. And when they have, they've benefited the highest earners. So much so that now the average CEO makes 361 times more than their average employee. To be fair, that's the average CEO. Don't forget about the up-and-coming CEOs who only make a hundred times more than their average employee. The struggle is real. How about using new metrics altogether? Take New Zealand. Their prime minister just introduced a so-called well-being budget, which uses 61 different indicators like loneliness to track how their country is doing in order to boost mental health, reduce poverty, and reduce carbon emissions. Also, everyone gets a sheep. I made that up, but probably. Or what about the Happy Planet Index, developed by one statistician that calculates a country's well-being using a variety of global data? Where does the US rank? Number one, 108th. 
What country has held the number one spot? Costa Rica. Their government is one of the first to commit to be carbon neutral by 2021. They abolished the army in 1949, and they invested in social programs, health and education. They have one of the highest literacy rates in Latin America and in the world. And they have that Latin vibe, don't they? Okay, a little fetishization there, but not wrong. Maybe that's what Trump's anti-immigrant stances are really about. They're bringing drugs, they're rapists, and they've got that Latin vibe that says, I'm just gonna throw together some arepas on a Friday night and invite my neighbors over whose names I all know, and at some point someone will break out a guitar and everyone will know how to dance the Macarena. Not in my America! But damn, Costa Rica? So you're saying all we have to do to do well is dismantle the military, fund education, healthcare, and green energy? <laughs> we got that. It's time to get rid of these measurements that only work for rich people and stop clinging on to trickle-down economics, which clearly don't work. We need new parameters to gauge the well-being of our country, if for no other reason than to save the Beatles from being butchered. Eight days a week is not enough to pay my rent. Help, I need some money. Help, not my parents' money. Whisper words of surplus GDP. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for watching News Broke. We got a little silly. Hopefully you learned something. Ah, look at all the jobless people. Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube. Let me know in the comments below uh, what you think a good measurement for a healthy economy should be. And next week, we are talking about climate change and capitalism. We will see you next week. Francesca Fiorentini with her uh, take on the economy. The economy is doing so well, how come people are having to work two jobs, three jobs just to maintain? Well, the economy is not doing so well. Okay, want to go now to Fred Glass's uh, history of the California labor movement. Golden Lands Working Hands. And we're talking now about the period after World War II as uh, men and women came back from war, returned to, quote-unquote, you know, the places that they'd had before the war, tried to. Instead of attacking the the plutocrats, the American business community, which did business in, with uh, Hitler, which uh, shielded German generals, which undermined, you know, our alliance, our alliances. They blamed people who had joined the Communist Party or had been fellow travelers, as they were called, the Communist Party. And a lot of those were labor leaders. So we're going to see how they were dealt with. Recognizing the need for unity against the Nolan forces, 
the AFL, the CIO, the NAACP, and other progressive community groups formed the Oakland Voters League. We had put together all the precinct maps and had these lists of people. We divided the precincts up into areas of 10 precincts. I was given a map of the precincts. I was given a list of names. I didn't know where they came from and said, go find people to cover the precincts. This is following the Oakland general strike in 1948. This was in uh, West Oakland, an area of mixed black and white. Building a bridge between the labor movement and minority communities, the OVL runs five candidates in the spring 1947 city council election. It all went off amazingly smoothly and was a wonderful victory when we won four out of the five candidates. Although this leaves the Oakland Voters League one seat short of a majority on the nine-member council, Labor's victory cracks the anti-union Nolan machine for the first time in decades. Oakland's working people have a political voice and can no longer be ignored. One result is that the week after the election, the Retail Merchants Association recognizes the Retail Clerks Union in all of its stores. Whoever won before in Oakland? We showed by the general strike, if you hang together, you can take anybody on. It was a, a unique experience in my life to be involved in anything with such masses of people. I was really proud of the union members that came out. It, it convinced me more than ever that the union, union was the way to go for working people. When you say, what did it do for people, I think it, it, it gave them a greater sense of power. But not all California working people share in that sense of power. In 1948, Hollywood unions make this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty. It is meant to educate the public about the plight of hundreds of striking farm workers at the DiGiorgio Fruit Corporation ranch near Bakersfield. The corporation had kept the workers segregated by race in its eating and sleeping facilities. The National Farm Labor Union, Local 218, AFL, led by Ernesto Galarza and Jimmy Price, had a different idea to bring all the farm workers together for union recognition and a 10 cent an hour wage increase. We haven't a chance as individuals, but an organization will have strength. How many of you are with me? Aye. One new member at a nearby farm is a young Chicano farm worker receiving his first union card. Fanning out across the state, the farm workers gain wide support. Car caravans organized by the San Francisco and Los Angeles Labor Councils bring donated food and clothing. Most of the workers have to find other employment within a few months. For two years, though, a core group of workers keeps the strike going with the help of the California Labor Federation and friends in the community. But the other side is organized, too. Somebody shot into the local meeting at Arvin uh, hit Jimmy Price, he went down, severely injured, although not killed, and no one was ever apprehended in that situation, and, and of course, our people uh, didn't feel very good about the sheriff and the, and, the, and the law enforcement process. Although Price survives, the strike does not. The Giorgio's trucks are used to break picket lines. 
to bring in scabs and strike breakers. Oddly enough, this film, Poverty in the Valley of Plenty, ends matters. The DiGiorgio Corporation sues Local 218 for $2 million for libel. The union has no money to contest the case. It signs a settlement out of court agreeing that the film is libelous, that it will pay DiGiorgio $1 in damages, recall all copies of the film, and end the strike. The longest farm labor strike in American history is over. But while the farm workers lose this round, the seeds have been planted for later success. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. Anti-communism was a union-busting tactic, in my view, which divided working people, which divided uh, unions, which divided union leadership, which weakened the union movement greatly. six men who built this house. Now let's move to California. This is the El Dorado Rancho's development in Southern California. These homes reflect the colorful West Coast trend. And we have shrubbery, of course, right along in here. And, oh darling, it's going to be just perfect. We were living in a duplex and we had a car and a half. <laughs> and uh, we were able to raise three kids with without my wife necessarily working, although she was working part of the, that time in those years also. Thanks to a booming economy and the highest percentage of union membership ever, most California workers are carrying full lunch pails. I think by going to work at Sears Roebuck and being in a union, then I first of all had control of my job and I couldn't have some security. These workers take home more in their paychecks, more with which to buy the products of America's expanding production. More foodstuffs, clothing, homes and home furnishings, appliances, farm equipment, automobiles, all of the things which go to make up our American standard of living. But in addition to that, I could start looking at other cars. Three weeks ago, we bought another Ford, the new low-priced custom line Victoria. Isn't it stunning? Dave has it all to himself. And I now have the ranch wagon all to myself. It's a whole new way of life. In the midst of the unprecedented prosperity, some new words enter the political vocabulary. McCarthyism, red-baiting, HUAC, Cold War. Of course, 
then they started that Cold War and the communists. They used that uh, House Un-American Activities Committee. They used that to smear people. The communists have been, still are, and always will be a menace to freedom, to democratic ideals, to the worship of God, and to America's way of life. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to a question then you, which invades his, absolutely invades Then his you deny, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct? Down in Hollywood, uh, Jerry Fielding, he was the band leader, the musical director for the Groucho Marx show. Uh, I had two friends of mine, he hired them. They broke the color bar down there because you had a color bar where they were all white musicians. Two of my friends, Jerry Fielding, hired them. What happens? The House on american Activities, they call him up before them. He lost his job with, uh, with the Groucho Marx show. It isn't just Hollywood facing the anti-communist investigations. The federal government moves against immigrant labor leaders suspected of communist sympathies. It attempts to deport Longshoremen's Union President Harry Bridges four times in the 1940s and 50s. In the case of Luisa Moreno, cannery workers' union leader, it succeeds returning her to Guatemala. Jewish immigrant Joe Springer, who rose from the sweatshops to become a leader in the Los Angeles Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, is blacklisted and driven from the garment industry. His oldest boy is beaten in school for having a communist father. The anti-communist attack reaches down into the union rank and file, too. I found that just being an active, having an activist orientation put me under suspicion of being a communist. I then began suffering a good deal of unemployment and it was time to move out of the area. I had no, no alternative. I had read a book as a 10th grader by uh, Dalton Trumbo and I went to hand the book report in and the teacher told me that she couldn't take it. I had no clue why. I mean, this was, I guess, about 1953. And then, whap! He found that books may have facts, ideas in them to help people get along together in this troubled world. So he went to work on the books. He went into the libraries and the schools, and he took the books he didn't like. He took those books and he made a big scrap heap, a great pile of books, and he danced around them singing a song that went like this. To suppress the expression of truth in a lesson, there's nothing so good as a book-burning session. So, so the teacher made me promise that I would tell no one because she could get in a lot of trouble. People were scared to death of being labeled communist, and for good reason. People were being thrown in jail. They were being blacklisted. Where did this red scare come from? Since the 1917 revolution, the Soviet Union had presented its system, which it called socialist, as an alternative to American capitalism. Although many labor activists did not consider the USSR to be socialist, since workers lacked democratic control over the system, tens of thousands of well-meaning people joined the American Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s, because it seemed to offer a solution for workers poorly treated by capitalism in crisis. After World War II, the international competition between the United States and the Soviet Union translates into something else at home. A former vice president of the United States warns, Inevitably, the Cold War means a colder war against labor and progress in America. 
The idealism of communist activists is now proposed to be equivalent to treason. There is no doubt as to where a real communist loyalty rests. Their allegiance is to Russia, not the United States. This Red Scare helps to pass the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which makes organizing tools such as mass picketing and secondary boycotts illegal and forces union leaders to sign an oath declaring they aren't communist. I went through some pretty... Okay, that's part eight of uh, Fred Glass's History of uh, California Labor Movement, produced by the Labor in the Schools Committee of the California Federation of Teachers. And that brings us to the near end of our day. This is the Labor and Love Show, where we tell you how it is. See if we have some time for a credo. A couple of them anyway. This is uh, Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the, in the looms of the big mill towns in the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshop in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it, no root, no fruit. Thank you, Utah Phillips. Earlier we were celebrating Eugene Debs, one of the great labor leaders in U.S. history. And the, the labor card dedicated to Eugene Debs says, while there is a soul in jail, I am not free. Eugene Debs was jailed in 1919 for opposing the draft of young men to fight in World War II. Basically, what he said was that the rich went to war, the young fought and bled for them bled in the war. While in jail, he ran for president and received almost a million votes. Debs was born in Indiana and left school at 14 to work on the railroad, later becoming a fireman. Debs was president of the American Railroad Union in 1894 when the ARU won a strike against the Great Northern Railroad but lost a national campaign for better work and working conditions to the brutal Pullman Company. Debs, along with several others, was one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World. He was released from prison in 1921. He was uh, pardoned by then-President Harding. 
So come on down to Mutiny Radio where it's all happening. We've got a beautiful display on the walls here of uh, motorcycles. All sizes and shapes and uh, historical periods. Come on down, have a look at it. Get involved with what's going on here. More than a radio station, more than a comedy club. A community arts center. You can rent a space for two hours and have your own meeting. You can put up a hundred bucks a month and have your own show, your own voice. You can do it. Come on down to Mutiny and do it. Okay, let's go out with Nina Simone. This is Labor and Love. Hope you have a good week and good work. Uh, here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye.
apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020 coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. But you can apply now through November 30th. 50 shows in seven days, over 50 comics from all around the U.S., and you could be one of them. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, www.mutinyradio.fm. Click the Apply button. Pay that 20 bucks. Donate to Mutiny Radio and apply with your five-minute video to the Mutiny Radio 5th Annual Comedy Festival coming up March 1st through 7th, 2020. Submissions close November 30th. Get those submissions in now. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. (laughs) 
Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. in San Francisco comedy scene. Maybe you want time to do jokes. Well, this is the place to do it. Mutiny Radio. We have three open mic a week just for you. Monday's joke workshop from 6 to 8. Come and get four minutes and four minutes of commentary from your comedian peers. Come on Fridays for happy hour 6 to 8 here at Mutiny Radio. All the comics wonderful hilarious people in the scene get to know them hang out do a set have it recorded here and on a podcast at mutinyradio.fm and come in on saturdays from four to six get long sets because no one ever shows up so it's like stage time and people can listen come on by to mutiny radio get your comedy on baby tell me what you think about your situation, complication, aggravation. Is it getting to you? Then tune in live every Sunday from 12 to 2 p.m. to the edge of insanity with myself, Paul Brumbaugh. Kit Marie. Brandon Ray. And Mistress Christine. All on Mutiny Radio. That's right, pcrcollective.org. We'll see you there. Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 9584. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio.
mutinyradio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Black, black, classic. Looking big, splits, and trees.